You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder, the podcast where we explore the wild, beautiful stories and minds of people living with severe mental illness. Today's episode is especially significant. When I have a new guest come on, I'm usually not sure exactly what to expect as the conversation unfolds. Meet Diana a woman in her early 20s who lives with bipolar type 1 with psychotic features. When she first reached out to me about coming on the show, she shared that she had recently been diagnosed with bipolar and hospitalized. Initially, I thought this meant that she had only been living with bipolar for a relatively short period of time. But as we got further into the recording, Diana explained that she actually has had numerous hospitalizations over the years prior to her formal diagnosis. She went further to explain most of the hospitalizations followed each installment in a long history of suicide attempts, the most recent one being just a couple of weeks before we recorded this episode. So, of course, as far as content warnings go, this conversation goes very in-depth about suicide and suicidal ideation. I tell you all of this because my conversation with Diana gets particularly deep. At certain points, you can really hear the pain in her voice, but ultimately, her message is one of peace and positivity, and she shares some incredible insight that honestly nearly brought me to tears. So yes, this is a very special and meaningful installment to the podcast series. Get locked in for a very sobering, human, and real journey into the world of bipolar depression and mania. This is Diana's story. My name is Hunter Keegan. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. This evening, I am joined by Diana, who is a young woman living with, um, you know, mental health conditions. Um, I wanted to just start by saying that Diana is from Connecticut. That's where she hails from. And let's turn it over to you for a second, so you can introduce yourself to the audience and. Um, we'll just kind of go from there, okay? Um, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Deanna. I'm 24. Um, I have a few diagnoses. Um, so I've been struggling with depression, major depressive, since I was about 12 years old. Didn't get formally diagnosed till I was about like 22. But recently, last December, I was diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder, uh, which made my life... Uh, figure that like everything that I was going through made sense now that I have this diagnosis 
Um, I've also been diagnosed in the past two years with delusion, psychosis, PTSD, and OCD. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I have bipolar type one with psychosis too. I've also had issues with OCD in the past. Um, definitely not easy living with those types of conditions, but you said that when you received the recent bipolar diagnosis, it actually comforted you in a way and made things make sense. What, what things started becoming more apparent to you making more sense after that diagnosis? So just everything that like was constructed in what I was doing, like the reckless spending and when I was manic, um, the depressiveness, the constant suicidality, everything that like I was doing, like even with the, de the delusions that I was having, um, everything that was going on in my life for like the past three years, because I guess you can say that even though I was depressed since I was 12, I started having episodes from bipolar disorder about four years ago in 2018. Um, when I first noticed it and I thought I was bipolar disorder and I got I brought it up to my old therapist who I'm no longer with and she was like no you can't be bipolar it's depression and when I finally got diagnosed it was like everything makes sense now and um but then I started thinking like everything I do is because of bipolar and then it's like you have to distinguish the line between like what is your diagnosis and like what is just you be like from like just being you and it's a hard like thin lines go by so who are you without the diagnosis who is diana as an individual can you separate them at this point or is that still something that you're kind of working through um, I guess you didn't say that's someone I'm still trying to struggle with and try to kind of confine with but I guess um, you could say that I'm someone who's trying to work on going to school and giving back to my community and the universe. Um, I want to go to school to become a clinical psychologist. Um, I want to open up my own private practice. I love art. I love writing. Um, I love journaling. I love opening up to the people, making people happy, laugh. Um, I guess you could say that's it for right now. I don't really know who I am. I feel like the last two years of my life, I've been consumed by manic and depressive episodes. Um, that like I honestly, part of me doesn't realize who I am anymore. But recently I've become stable off new meds that I've been on. And I'm starting to like enjoy life again and um, be able to like be like a basic 24 year old. Nice. Yeah. I mean, 24 years old is still very young. You've got plenty of time to figure it out. I'm still learning about myself at the ripe old age of 28. So I think that learning experience is just an ongoing process that'll last until we die. <laughs> so I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself for that. But you said you um, want to become a psychologist. Are you currently in school? Yes, I'm actually just enrolled in school. Um, I had to take some time off due to like my recent hospitalizations.
At this point in the conversation, I noticed that Diana referenced having more than one inpatient hospital stay. But um, I'm recently going to, in the May, going to be studying psychology at a university. Um, hopefully one after that, I get my PhD and I'd like to open up my own private practice one day. Nice. That's an awesome goal to work toward. Is there anything that made you interested in that as an academic field beyond just living with psychological issues of your own? Um, I think the impact, like my friends. So growing up, I had these great friends that were always there for me. And like when I was suicidal, like took their own measures into their own hands and like got me the help that I needed. And without them, I wouldn't be here. And I feel like just like connection in general with like people is like rich in per and it saves lives. And I just love connecting with people and getting to know why people are the way that they are. And I think in therapy, you get to learn about people and you just like under, to like understand who we are as people. Yeah, learning more about other individuals and kind of using that to inform your own perspective. That's super interesting. Uh, so my my academic background is in psychology. I have a bachelor's degree in psych. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty fascinating field. I actually, as a student at Penn State, I didn't focus a whole lot on clinical psychology at the time. I actually had a different subfield that I was focusing on but I did take a lot of classes related to abnormal psychology and things like that um, due to, you know, the different credit requirements for the program that I was in. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because at that time I was learning in a textbook about bipolar disorder, but I was also learning through lived experience, which I didn't even recognize at the time. So Anyhow, um, again, awesome goal to be working toward. Um, I, I wish you all the best in your endeavors with that. Thank but you. Circling back to um, the bipolar diagnosis, what happened in December of 2021 that changed things? Was there like an inciting incident or did you start working yes, with a new there doctor? there was um, a very big incident. This is where the plot really starts to thicken, and Diana begins sharing more about her history of hospitalizations and suicide attempts. The level of detail she went into actually caught me a bit off guard, and I found myself hanging on her every word. I was hospitalized. I attempted suicide. I was manic. I, well, I wasn't just manic. I was in a mixed state. Um, so basically I was guilty having delusions that I was this horrible human being. Um, and I would be in this manic state that like the world would be better off without me. And I was happy singing and dancing around like my room at like three in the morning. So I went to CVS and I brought some very serious things like some chemicals like laundry detergent, rust cleaner, blades, zip ties. And yes, there's this big old 
bottle of Tylenol that's worth 245 pills. I purchased that. So then after work at my shift, I texted all of my coworkers that, you know, I'm not a good person. You're all great people. I have to go. Goodbye. An interesting note to keep in mind here is that the first suicide attempt she discusses actually occurred during a mixed manic episode, not a major depressive episode. And basically, I sat behind the dumpster at work, and I gulped down with some Gatorade 245 pills yes the whole bottle and I was manic as shit I mean it was now looking back on it three months because it was so it was December 21st so it was about three months ago mm-hmm. and um it's just unbelievable how like mentally unstable I was um meanwhile all my co-workers were crying um calling 911 Um, I was eventually found five hours later. Um, If the EMS didn't find me within an hour, I would have had liver failure. That's what they said. I was in the ICU for four days. Um, Basically, and then I told the psychiatrist when I was in the ICU that like I thrive off of like thinking about suicide and like all this stuff and I don't know, after that, like I looked up on like the my chart on like from the hospital, from the hospital stay, and it said bipolar one disorder. And now, so my, so it was a year ago, my APRN told me I had bipolar disorder, but it wasn't like officially diagnosed by a psychiatrist till December 21st, 2021. So that incident um, really, um, put in perspective how severe the illness is um yeah like I've done like weird manic things like spending sprees and like just like be like basic depressed and like maybe like some suicide but that was the most extreme I've ever had a suicide I had a suicide attempt before um and it just really brought like awareness to me how like like just like everything about like the disorder. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a really intense type of wake up call, really intense kind of incident to have. So I had a, uh, a couple of questions for you just yeah. based off of all of that intense stuff that you just shared. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned an APRN. Uh, what is an APRN? When Diana references her APRN, what she's referring to is an advanced practice registered nurse. Psychiatric Mental Health Nurse Practitioners, aka PMHNPs, fall under this category of healthcare provider. A psychiatric nurse practitioner is basically a registered nurse with advanced training, licenses, and certifications. They are sort of the bridge between therapists and doctors in that they can prescribe medication 
However, they are not full-fledged psychiatrists. Unlike psychiatrists, many NPs, nurse practitioners, also participate in actual therapy work, such as talk therapy, CBT, DBT, EMDR, etc., with their patients. Diana will explain more about it. So an APRN is a psychiatric nurse with, so she's a nurse practitioner with two years of psychiatric training. So she basically, she does her own private practice like therapy, but at the same time, since because she's a nurse practitioner, she can prescribe you meds. So right. she also, she prescribes me meds, but also does my therapy. Okay. Normally they're called nurse practitioners. Yeah, I've worked with nurse practitioners in the past too. Some people say they can be advantageous compared to psychiatrists in some cases. Um the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is this suicide attempt went down in a very public kind of way. Uh, what type of job were you working at the time? And how, like, what was, what was that like? Because that's a very, uh, you know, like, it's not like you were able to hide it when, when this no, true. events um, took so place. I was working at Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. Um, even though it was behind the dumpster, like, so it was this, like these two big dumpsters. So actually nobody could see me because it was behind the woods. But what I, what happened, what, what I did was deemed by the police, a public disturbance. Okay. And um, actually because it was deemed a public disturbance, my insurance wouldn't pay, pay for the ambulance ride. I had to pay for the ambulance ride to get to the hospital. By this time in the conversation, as I began to understand more of the gravity of the situations that Diana had recently been in, I also recognized that she was still taking time to process the events. Here, she talks through her reactions to the December 2021 hospitalization. Um, looking back on it, um, it's not my various fond moment. Um, based on what I felt, I do not regret it. I just, when I think about it, I don't really know because now those five hours passed, it was about like 5.30 at night and I was, I was like drained. I was completely tired. I was throw up on me. I was like, just, just get me to the hospital. Like, I don't care anymore. Like, I just, I'm so sick. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking back. So this was the plan. I was going to walk back into the store okay. and tell like who was ever working, like, look, I'm sorry for what I texted you, but I need help. So as I was walking back, into the store my sister's fiance found me and he was going to drive me to the er but the cop showed up and then you know they started asking questions and mm -hmm. i just remember blacking in and out um but um the whole situation was probably 
like so from this that experience i've attempted suicide two other times this year in january and in february wow and was hospitalized when Diana revealed that she had actually experienced two more suicide attempts between December 2021 and March 2022, the time of the recording, my jaw nearly hit the floor. Um, so because of it was what I did on December was in public, mm-hmm. the next two attempts that I did the police were involved. They looked at what I did as attention seeking. Hmm. They were more concerned about like other people's safety and the public safety than mine. I always provide guests with a basic interview guide prior to the recording that includes a list of example questions. Diana had prepared detailed responses for a couple of these questions in advance. And she reads for us from her notes. Like, that goes back to, like, one of your questions you asked. Like, what was the craziest um, experience you've had with mental illness? Because of that one experience, my... Like, I'm afraid, like, if I ever attempt again, that all of my attempts will now be based on attention-seeking. That's mm-hmm. what the police will look, deem it as, just because of one public attempt. Um, but it's just um, crazy how... Um, so on January 17th, 2022 I quit my job at Duncan um and I attempted suicide I didn't actually do anything but I had a weapon on me I had a butcher knife on me but it wasn't going to hurt anyone else but me mm-hmm. um but my APR my psychiatric nurse practitioner called 911 on me um I was sent to the hospital um yeah now the um the police because it was deemed a threat, went to my house, took DNA, took my journals, found evidence, and they collected all this evidence because it was on some watch. Um, it was kind of like eye-opening to me how like this could happen when like I've never threatened anyone else in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's like hard to like look back on it but I'm honestly glad it's just like all past me now and I'm just looking forward to the future um but it's crazy how mental illness is incidents are deemed from the public Mm -hmm. like that first incident in December my coworkers were like oh we're here for you you know we love you you know and then like the next time you know, I don't blame anyone. Like, I get it. But, like, in January, I reached out to some few people and no one answered me. But, like, I understand things happen. But, um, and then, you know, some people were like, you know, we're all just sick of this, you know, get over it. But it's like, you know, when you live with a mental illness, like, you live with this every day. You can't just get over it. It's just, have to have, it's just something you have to deal with and, like, learn to live with and control and 
take care of. You don't just get over it and move on with it. Right. Wise words, for sure. Um, Circling back to that first incident in December, um, what were you doing in the intervening five hours between when you took the medication and uh, the EMTs found you or the police found you? So basically, so for like the first three hours, I was literally walking back and forth with music on in my ears, like walking around like happy, like I'm dying, you know, this is great, I'm finally gonna die, I deserve to die, it's gonna make everyone happy, and then the throwing up started happening, and I became extremely sick throwing up, I really had to use the bathroom, I couldn't urinate because of all the pills that I just took, I was in pain, I was just laying on the floor, I was like, like I remember blacking out for maybe like about an hour or so and that's when I got up looked at the time it was like about 4 35 and I was like there just came a point where I was like okay you know I can't do this anymore like I need to get help blah 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 and I started walking so was, was this like 4 30 or 5 in the morning or was no, it this was after at, your... at night okay so after your uh, shift at Dunkin' Donuts and when so when you actually returned to work after this incident because you said you had worked there a little while after that what what was people what was the reaction toward you from your coworkers? So everything was positive. Everything was fine. People were just like, oh, I'm glad you're feeling better. But then when I started talking to some of like my close coworkers, you know, they really told me like what went down, you know, they were like, you fucked up everyone's day, you know, Um, we were all worried about you and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I'm honestly sorry. And um, that made me open up to some of these people because, you know, they didn't know about the diagnosis that I had and like, you know, why I did what I did. Um, And they were like, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You know, I became close to them. Um, So nothing was really too stigmatizing. Actually, I was surprised um, at my my district manager about how open he was and he was like you know like I need you like throughout that whole time when I was in the back of the dumpster he was like calling me he was the one who actually called he reported me missing and he told me you know like you're my best employee like I need you like everything's gonna be okay like so it was actually very supportive that was honestly all of their reactions was very shocking to me but in a positive way um So nothing too stigmatizing, which was good. Um, That doesn't mean I haven't dealt with stigmatizing in my life. I have, but um, well, the next incident that I talked that I just talked about in January, I've dealt with um, some stigmatizing words. But um, I think there's stigma in every illness, but um, we just have to learn to move past it. Yeah, well, you were kind of alluding to like there even being that stigma from people after you learned more from your closer coworkers, you know, they they said you had fucked up their day or whatever. So did you feel like in retrospect, their words were kind of shallow or do you feel like some of the people really wanted to support you, whereas others 
um, were kind of just like going through the motions and, and trying to figure out, you know, the quote unquote right things to say. True. Um, I feel that both way. Um, I feel like honestly now looking back, that's just some people like, cause some people were like from like older generation who don't really understand mental illness. So like to me, I felt like they were just trying to find the right words to say, maybe they didn't really know what to say. Um, but it did make me feel like immensely bad when like they were like, you know, you fucked up, you know, our day, you know, that was never the plan. Like it was never the plan to make anyone feel bad. You know, I was sitting there like happy, you know, you know, everyone's going to be so happy. Meanwhile, I obviously that wasn't the, the what happened, but um, looking back, um, it just makes me realize how like, like for other people's perspectives in times of need, I don't think people really know what to say to people who are like having the moments that I was in. Mm-hmm. And maybe that makes me understand more and not get so upset. Like, oh, we're here for you. I support you. I'm so sorry about what happened, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what would you say to someone who was in your situation in that moment returning after a suicide attempt and just kind of trying to get your feedback under you at this point diana pulled out a page from her notes and read from it so i would probably say something along the lines that um so just not like what I went through or maybe like everyone um like so to probably tell them to like don't ever give up I promise you there is hope um someone me I care and I want you to live and have a well worthwhile life mental illness is hard trust me I know what we all get through it the bad times in between there will be good I believe in you anyone struggling can't talk to me um seriously I will listen to you um mental illness is hard but if you have a heart and a soul that nourishes you and that is yours and loves you stay here it will get better know that the hardest efforts that you make to end your life and the consequences that you seek from them don't determine who you are as a person. And I know that's like a weird saying to say, but basically that means that is like what I, what I went through, like that doesn't define who you are. You're not like defined by your lowest. Yeah, because that's something that I've struggled with a lot in the past months is trying to separate what I've done and who I am as a person. Because yeah. you have to realize that, you know, you were sick. You, that wasn't really you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the illness. Yeah. Um, it, so you said that there had been something else that happened in February. Um, was that an additional attempt on your own life? Or Yes. Yeah, so, wow. okay. Yeah. Um, 
so basically the attempts that I've had throughout my whole entire life um so basically I fantasize about suicide it's this weird like OCD thing whereas like you know normal OCD people like fantasize about like cleaning and cleanliness and perfectionist well no I over I fantasize about death and suicide um it's hmm. very strange it's very um out of the ordinary um but um but it was situational. Um, so basically, I was manic. I wasn't sleeping for five days. Um, and then basically, I started drinking um, all this wine in my house. Mm-hmm. And someone found out. And they're like, why did you drink all the wine? And I was like, I don't know. It was there. And then they basically said to me that I ruined their life. And that you know, all these things I caused all these people and I've hurt all these people from all the past suicide attempts and all with the police and all this stuff. And I just remember sitting in my room, like crying, like I'm on out, I don't want to do this anymore. So it was very impulsive, very impulsive. I, I just made the decision that I would, I would go to the hospital, move out, start a new life not attempting suicide or anything but I had the next morning I woke up now this is the same morning I had an appointment for an intensive outpatient program to you know help me get better and move on with my life and get me back on my feet from the last suicide attempts and instead I found these pills and I overdosed on mitol which is basically what you take for your period it has caffeine and Tylenol in it and I packed a bag and I started walking and then I got sick and I texted my psychiatric nurse practitioner what I did and then she called 911 on me mm-hmm. and I went to the hospital was in the ICU for two days and then was hospitalized for two weeks that one I do regret because it was just so impulsive um Keep in mind here that the attempt Diana is referring to occurred less than four weeks before the time of the recording. From that last attempt, um, things have gotten better. Um, I'm way more stable. Um, Things are looking up um, after not being employed since January after not going to school for a year due to hospitalizations and being mentally unstable. I now have job interviews. Um, I'm going back to school in May. Um, I'm getting sleep. I'm, I'm not having such up and downs in my moods. Um, and I don't obsess, which is crazy because I haven't felt this way since I was 12. Obsess over suicide. Um, That's a big one for me. Do you think that is like a benefit of new medications that you're on or working with a therapist or anything else in your life? Okay. Do you wanna talk a little bit about the medications that you're taking? Sure. So I'm on a bunch of medications. So I'm on lithium and lithium 
I know what everyone says, it either works or it doesn't work for you, but lithium has honestly taken away my suicidal thoughts, like the intensity of it. Yeah. Um, I'm on, I just started Valar, which has helped my mania completely and has made me sleep. Um, I'm on Latuda, but I'm, I've been on that since a year ago, but I'm wearing, I'm waving off that and being put on Seroquel just because some of the side effects of Latuda, Latuda gives me stomach problems. Yeah, that's, that's all I'm on right now. So I'm on mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. How long have you been on that regimen for? Because I mean, if we're talking February, it's March 22nd at the time okay, of this so recording. I've been on lithium since January. Okay. I've been on Velar for about three weeks. Yeah. Um, I've been on Latuda since January. Um, I've been on other stuff. So throughout my life, I've been on medication since 2020. I've been on antidepressants which never worked for me and made me manic. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on Lexapro and Prozac. And then I was on some antipsychotics. I was on Abilify, which made me gain a lot of weight. I was on Clozapine, which made me have very bad tremors. Um, I was on Respital that gave me tardive dyskinesia. Um, Mm. I was also on... Depakote, which made me throw up. And I was on Wellabutrin, which just didn't give us the full effects. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a very long time of experimenting with different cocktails of medication before you find one that is effective for you personally, because it, it is different for everybody. You mentioned that Risperdal was causing tardive dyskinesia. Um, do you want to explain for the audience what tardive dyskinesia or TD is? Yeah, so basically it was the worst 24 hours experience of my life. So basically what happened was sometimes the hospital medicates you a little too much. Mm-hmm. So I was on two of a high dose of Risperdal. Yeah. Now, see, this is a warning for all antipsychotics because they affect the uh, neurotransmitter dopamine instead of serotonin. Um, Too much of dopamine can cause, um, can affect your central nervous system and can, you you can basically have uncontrollable body movements. And uncontrollable body movements, I mean, you can't sit still. You, you're drooling. Mm -hmm. Your, Your lips are snuckering. You're, you're blinking fast. I mean, I literally spent the whole night. I couldn't sit still. My legs felt like they were moving, but you can't sit still. And you just, I couldn't, I kept walking backwards because I couldn't stop. Like, it was like my whole central nervous system was depressed. Um, what did get rid of it though was Benadryl. Um, but gladly it all went away when I stopped taking the medication because sometimes when you experience TD the symptoms become permanent yeah so you know like for for people who don't know um in in the crowd and the audience um when you get placed in a psych ward sometimes what they'll do is they'll put you on like a very abnormally high dose of an antipsychotic such as Risperdal 
since you're in a medically controlled environment, um, they'll put you on like a way higher dose than what someone would normally take in their day-to-day life. Um, so it, it sounds like they hit you with a pretty high dose of Risperdal um, during your hospitalization experience. And they realized that that was causing really dangerous side effects for you. Yes, like, but it wasn't until like right, literally, of course, right after I got discharged, and then I had to go to the ER because I had these symptoms. Wow. So what, like, you've had um, a couple of very recent hospitalization experiences. What was your inpatient treatment like? Did you feel like it helped you? Did it hurt things? What were your overall reactions to your experience? Also, was it at the same hospital each time? Okay, so I've been to two different hospitals. Um, So one of them, my heart goes out to Yale um, in New Haven. That's usually the hospital that I've always gone to. Um, Their staff has just been amazing. They have care, care and supportive staff, which is honestly the backbone of psychiatric hospitals. Um, I've also been to other hospitals which are different and have not every psychiatric hospital is the same as the other. Everything is different. Um, If you can and you're in a crisis, I know it's a crisis, so you obviously kind of can't make that decision. But if you can, I would advise you to go to the hospital that you're most comfortable with. It's very hard to get transferred out once you're in one. Um, So my experiences with psychiatric hospitals have been good, actually. Um, I don't mind them. I just mind the whole, like, the items you can bring and what you can and can't wear, like, the, like, and it's basically a form of elementary school, kind of. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you you can only do so much, and there's so many rules, and um, you have to go to group therapy, otherwise you won't be discharged, and you have to talk to the doctor, and you have to take your meds, and you have to go go to you know you can't go out of your room at a certain time you have to go to bed at this certain time but um the one thing I like about psychiatric hospitals is the people you meet yes sometimes when I go to psychiatric I'm scared of you know you never know what's going to happen or the people you're going to meet once you start connecting with people and talking to people that's the greatest aspect of a psychiatric hospital opening up to people and realizing that even though you may have different diagnosis and sometimes people, you know, they connect in ways that you can't imagine or they may relate or know what you're going through and you just bond with someone like you never have before. And unlike any people you have on the outside world, um, because that's one thing that I can say about psychiatric hospitals, people understand what you're going through and usually people won't judge you um but I've gotten switched on multiple meds there that's how I started medication from psychiatric hospitals um I in September of 2021 I started ECT from psychiatric hospitals which was Mm -hmm. yes scary but um overall that was one thing besides the lithium that took away my suicidal thoughts. Yeah, e- um, ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. Yes. 
I just wish, well, the one thing I wish about um, psychiatric hospitals is that the groups were more effective. Yeah. That's the one, the biggest downfall, I believe, that our psychiatric hospitals, because the groups were more like generalized and like mindfulness and like, you know, not to like beat down mindfulness, but mindfulness does not work for me. And it's just like, I think every patient should have more one-on-one therapy with a psychiatrist or doctor or social worker than like instead of 10 minutes a day. But I guess when you have a psychiatric hospital full of like 25 patients, that's like kind of hard to do. Yeah. Um, it's weird because I think there's a lot of perception that like if you were in a psychiatric hospital then you would just be in like constant like therapy and like talking to doctors but it really isn't like that it's like you meet with a psychiatrist maybe for like in my own uh case just speaking from my own experience it's like I was in the hospital for about a week and I spoke to a doctor maybe for a combined total of 30 minutes throughout like the five days that I was there and they would have group therapy but the therapists who were leading the group one therapist in particular um they they didn't really know what they were doing they they weren't good at moderating a group therapy session um so there's that component to things. You can just have bad therapists in general, or there can be what you're talking about, where there might be an individual who needs more one-on-one counseling and not necessarily like a big group setting or session. No, I completely agree with that. Um, sometimes I think like, I wish like it like treatment was more individualized for like one person because you know when you do a therapy session outside of the hospital it's at least 45 minutes um to a Mm -hmm. session meanwhile when you're in crisis critical care it's only like 10 minutes when I was in the hospital in January no lie my doctor asked me how my day was I was like it's going good and she was like okay I'll see you tomorrow I was like what (laughs) (laughs) no follow-up to that like no right I was like okay it's also like how do you think my day is going I'm fucking here right now like like come on right literally and then I complain I called to my mom I was like what the fuck I literally talked to the doctor for five minutes she's like what the fuck I'm calling, this is ridiculous. At this point in the conversation, Deanna's tone suddenly shifts as she talks about how she was treated by the doctor at the hospital. She fights back tears. And it's just like, like, I don't understand, like, especially when you're in a psychiatric hospital, like, and everything is based on emotions, how you're doing, how, and you're a doctor, that's what you do for a living. How could you just ask someone, how are they, and believe that I'm good, and then be like, okay, see you tomorrow. Like, don't you want some follow-up questions? Mm-hmm. Some more compassion and genuine yeah. interest in your well-being. And those, like, inpatient hospitalization, the costs vary based on different things, but you're generally talking about around $1,000 a day for inpatient treatment, right? 
Yeah, I've actually never, fortunately, never had to deal with having to pay out of pocket only because insurance pays for it. Mm-hmm. But yes, I would say hospitalization is very expensive, um, which I don't think is right. Um, well, I do know a slight fact from when I was hospitalized in um, December that hospitalization I was talking about, I had to pay for the ambulance ride and that was $500 out of pocket. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not cheap to be mentally ill and in no. need of services. I'm glad your insurance covers it, though. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. I'm so I'm 24. Mm-hmm. So until I'm 26, I'm I'm on my mom's insurance. So I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm 26. Um, hopefully I get some insurance because otherwise my life is going to go secretly downhill because um therapy is like $200 a session and I literally base my life like I have such a strong connection with my APRN and I look forward to her sessions every week and I truly can honestly say that I tell her everything and I want that for every single person who is listening to find someone that they can tell everything to because it honestly makes the world such a better place for you to live in um, to be able to confine your most inner thoughts and like without that like I'd be struggling a lot more and and with the fears um in December you know having that fear like like I didn't know that so my mom used my own money to like pay for the hospital the ambulance to come and get me but like imagine like not knowing that and like coming out from a hospital stay and like getting the bill in the mail of like thousands millions of dollars that you have to pay from insurance like that's awful you're just gonna make someone more suicidal like how in America or even not even just in America like how in the world is that like okay like like it's just so like there has to be like I don't know if you've ever seen Charlie Brown and like Lucy goes or the one with the the dark hair that's always um mocking Charlie Brown and she's like psychiatric help five cents Mm-hmm. on the street like I want to do that because like well like officially like accurately do it like like we need that in like the world like free health care free mental and emotional and physical health care that like is like good because it's just like it's just basic like human needs like we all need that and it's yeah. scary like to live without that it is scary. There's all sorts of issues with the healthcare system in the United States and in other places throughout the world. Um, it's extremely expensive for people who have chronic health conditions, including psychiatric health conditions. Um, I know that for me personally, um, I have a private therapist and it's it's about $200 a session, like you said. So I'm spending thousands of dollars each year on that out of pocket. And um, it's, yeah, it's not cheap. Now we begin to focus more on the different types of help and resources that have worked for Diana over the last couple of years. We talk about how long she's been stable for 
and what her outlook on the future is. So how long have you been feeling stable for now? So about like two weeks. Um, I know it's just a short period of time, um, but I can honestly say in a very long time, I can say in the first time in about a good two years. So in the last wow. two years, since 2020, I've been hospitalized nine times. Wow. Um, I can honestly see that things are looking up and like, I'm generally like, for me as a person, I've never said the word, oh, I'm happy because I just feel like that's just not who I am, but I'm stable. I'm, I'm well, and I don't think I, I would be like this without the help of medications and therapy. And it honestly saved lives. And I just, it's just insane because like three months ago, two months ago, a month ago, like I was in such, I was in such like bad shape and like, you know, that's what everyone was saying to me, you know, usually every six months I attempt suicide, but you know, I was even making it six months. I was making it like less than three weeks. I would attempt suicide again. And now like, it's been more than a month that I've that I've I've gone without attempting suicide so that's incredible so it sounds like you're in the process of turning over a new leaf sort of you've got you've got a brighter outlook now you feel like you're on the right combination of medication um you said you have a great nurse practitioner who you work with what made you feel comfortable opening up to them in such a raw way so actually for the first six months I was seeing her. So the only reason why I started seeing her was because I needed someone to take my meds and I couldn't do my primary doctor. So I found her on psychology.com today. For anyone who's wondering, Diana is referencing psychologytoday.com, an excellent online resource in the United States for finding doctors therapists, and nurse practitioners in your area. I also strongly recommend this tool if you're looking for new mental health care providers. I, for my old therapist that I was seeing, she was like, you know, you don't really have to, you know, tell this person anything. You can just tell them, you know, you're great, you're fine, and then that's it. So my APRN would literally ask me, how are you today? Is everything good? How is the meds? I'd be like, yeah, everything's great. Everything's fine. And then we'd end the session. Mm -hmm. And literally on one of those times, so I was literally, so in July of 2020, we had a session together and she's like, hi, how was everything? And I'm like, great. And she's like, that's good. And like, yeah, I'll see you, you know, next month. And 20 minutes later I attempted suicide and she had no idea and it's like and then finally last last April it was April 2nd 2021 and just things were going out of control and I was like I can't do this anymore I need therapy so I finally confessed to my APR and everything I told her my whole entire life story and she was just like yeah it sounds like you could have bipolar disorder and you know, the more you tell me the things about your life, the more I can help you control your symptoms and get you the help that you need. And it's just like, it was her honesty about 
like she wasn't judgmental she was well thought listening and she understood like I've had a therapist most of my childhood and teen years who was more like a friend to me who was there for me but wouldn't offer any like real help to me to anything and my psychiatric nurse practitioner she was more like like a professional friend to me Mm. she could listen to me care for me comfort me in times of need but also give me that that psychiatric knowledge about illnesses disorders um getting help resources things that you know a therapist differs from a friend um and that's what really made me want to open up to her. And also, there are some therapists who are honestly afraid because, you know, of the mandated reporter. If you mention the word suicide, they will literally hospitalize you. And even if you're not actively suicidal. Now, I had a therapist who was like that. Like, I couldn't even talk about my suicidal thoughts. So I had to lie to her every time I saw her so I wouldn't get hospitalized. Meanwhile, with my therapist, as long as I'm safe and I'm not planning to, you know, jump off a bridge, you know, the night that I leave her office or talk to her, Mm. you know, or, you know, I talk to her or get help or go to the hospital or or tell her, you know, when I am, I'm allowed to talk about my suicidal thoughts in a non-comfortable disclosure way in a safe setting. And that's truly what has helped me the most because, you know, when we think of the word suicide, most people freak out and like dial 911, which, mm-hmm. you know, is what you sort of should do. But first, you should hear the person out first. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you have a strong relationship with your nurse practitioner and that you feel like you can trust her and that she's able to provide a better quality of care to you now. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're coming up on about one hour, so I just wanted to check in and ask if there's anything else you wanted to discuss that we haven't touched on. I mean, you've really shared a whole lot throughout the course of this recording, and my heart really goes out to you for being so open and honest, and um, I, I just wanted to ask if there was anything else that you'd like to touch on. Diana pulls out her notes for a final time and reads her advice for friends and family members of those living with mental illness. I really liked what she had to say. Um, I think that there's just one thing, like, so to anyone who has a friend or family member of someone who has a mental illness, now this has touched me personally because... You know, I have sisters and family members and they just never know the right thing to say. But honestly, I believe it's because they don't know what to say. Um, So I'm going to take it from the heart and just say this. Take them seriously. Listen to them. And I say this in all caps, non-judgmentally. No side comments either. They need your support and love. Without it, they could die. I know it's exhausting and hard to deal with it but just try to be as nicely and calm with them, please. Even when they do things you don't approve of or say mean things, they don't mean it. It's just their illness projecting. Take care of yourself too, though. They need you. 
it's very powerful. Do you feel like you have those types of people in your life right now? Um, I can honestly say I have one person in my life. So I have at least two people in my life who I can like that are friends and like one family that I can tell everything to based on um, like uh, mental illness. And that's great. Um, growing up, I didn't. Um, but um, having that one person, at least one person that you can talk to non-judgmentally um, can save a life and it can make you feel like you're not alone. And I think every single person needs that one person. Yeah, I agree. I think community, having non-judgmental support, having friends and family who you can rely on or just some sort of trusted person in your life um, those are definitely keys to strong mental health. Um, you said that you, uh, you like to do art, you like to do writing. Um, do you have any projects you're working on that you'd like to plug or any social media, any, anything like that, um, that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah. So, um, so I have a blog that I haven't. So right now I'm writing an article about, um, growing up with bipolar depression, mental illness, suicidality, stigma, the heartache of not knowing what's wrong with you and having to get help trying to live and surviving and how connection with others save lives. Um, it's basically my whole life story um, and how, you know, advocacy. Um, so it's not published yet, but I'm planning to within the next week publish it. So I have a blog. Um, there's nothing really published yet. It's just a website right now with nothing on it. But what's it's, the what's it called? It's called thinkermind.wixsite.com slash mind of own. Very cool. I'll be sure to put that in the episode description so people can check that out. This podcast is um, not going to be up for another couple of weeks. So by that time, your website may be active and people might be able to check it out right away. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I know that this isn't easy stuff to talk about and it really does take a lot of courage to open up in the way that you have. So just thank you for being so real. And, um, you know, I really do wish you all of the best in the future. I hope your future looks bright and Thank peaceful so and tranquil and that you continue getting the help and resources that you need. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure doing this. I'm so glad I found your podcast. I'm so glad that we were able to have you on. Thanks. You're welcome. a heavy episode. Nine hospitalizations and a suicide attempt nearly every six months. Sometimes even more than that. But things are looking up for Diana. She's working with a great nurse practitioner and taking a new regimen of medication to help with her symptoms. She's even working toward becoming a psychologist herself. Some of Diana's words really stuck with me. I'd like to read a quote from her that really resonated. She said, 
Mental illness is hard, but if you have a heart and a soul that nourishes you and that is yours and loves you, stay here and it will get better. Diana's blog is out now. Check the show notes for the link so you can view her art and writing. Diana is also on Twitter at peepweezer, P-E-E-P-W-E-E-Z-E-R. As always, thanks for joining me. My name is Hunter Keegan. I'm on Twitter at H.H. Keegan. Bipolar Recorder is on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. Be sure to check out our social media and web pages for cool merch and other ways to support the show. Help us keep this show running and get the word out about mental health. So, with all of that said, have a great day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.